Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and we are on episode 48. And I have here visiting with me, Matt Farrar and Joe Clements, uh, both co-founders of Strategic Digital Services. How are you guys doing today? Doing awesome, Francisco. Thanks for having us. Uh, We've been talking about doing this for a long time, so um, it's great to actually be here with you. Oh, I think it's going great. (laughs) No. <laughs> Joe is a man of few words, uh, unlike his wife, Sarah, who I know. Uh, she probably is a woman of many more words. But anyway, um, I want to thank you guys for being here. Uh, we're here in Orlando recording this, uh, and, um, and we've got Kyle over here who's uh, with Strategic Digital Services. Uh, we might have some videos or footage, or I don't know what's going on over here, but, uh, but it's good to have you guys here in Orlando. Um, and I know you're based in Tallahassee. Uh, Just a little quick uh, note about the Agents of Innovation podcast for those listening. Um, Everything uh, can be available on the website at agentsofinnovation.org. We have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that, and then all the blog posts for all the episodes are located there. So visit agentsofinnovation.org. And you can also find this podcast on iTunes uh, through Apple Podcasts. You can just go to the podcast app, uh, search for Agents of Innovation, find it there. We're also on Stitcher and SoundCloud. And at the end of this episode, we're going to feature a song by a local Orlando musician, Nicholas Roberts. He was on a previous episode of ours, and the song at the end of this episode is going to be uh, Still Believe by Nicholas Roberts, so stay tuned for that at the end of the episode. Uh, But now we're going to return back to Matt and Joe, and um, I know you guys started uh, Strategic Digital Services, which is, uh, explain what it is first for us. Yeah, absolutely. So SDS, as we like to call it, since we have a long name, um, is a, a digital media firm. Uh, we only focus on digital media. We don't do any traditional. Um, we're based in Tallahassee. We started about four and a half years ago. Um, so we primarily focus on online advertising, social media, uh, websites, basically anything that happens on the internet um, is, is in our field. And um, I know you guys started, like you said, four and a half years ago in Tallahassee. Uh, uh, what kind of clients do you typically have? Joe, I'll hand this one over to you. Okay. No, I'll take that. So typically it's going to be, uh, it's going to be uh, political clients. Uh, we're going to do some corporate work and we do some advocacy, nonprofit work. Uh, so you think of like ballot amendments that go on, uh, you know, ballots in a state or in a city or a county. Uh, stuff like that. Uh, most of our work is usually geared towards, you know, persuasion or behavior change in some way. Uh, we've been moving a little bit in the last six months towards some more like sales and brand driven stuff. But uh, the core of what we do has been in that space where you're trying to get people uh, to take an action uh, that isn't uh, a direct purchase or booking a vacation or something like that. So why is, uh, so you guys are, you bill yourself as one of the only digital only marketing services, right? Yeah. So look, this is something we talked about pre-show is, you know, why do I, why do we think it's important to be digital only? Uh, and it's, it's pretty simple actually. Uh, it's a business model problem that a traditional agency has when it comes to media buying for their clients. Uh, if you are a business, you're going to buy the thing naturally, which makes you the most money right now. There's a major, major misalignment between consumer attention, what people care about, what people watch and where money is being spent. Uh, there's momentum behind spending behind TV, right? So we have huge TV spending, but people are watching less and less and less and less TV. And this is because for a large agency, it's a lot easier to make money on buying TV where you do one high cost TV production ad and then you place your buy once and then you dust off your hands and you're done with the campaign and you took your piece of the media buy and that was the game for you. In digital, it's a lot different. You're going to produce, you know, 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 pieces of unique content. You're gonna place a buy perhaps multiple times each week or each month, and you're gonna adjust that buy depending on how it's performing. When you place a buy on TV or radio, you're not accountable for the performance. When you do that on digital, you're accountable for the performance. So the cost of providing digital services, the margins in our business are lower than the margins are for a traditional agency. So thinking from the client's perspective, 
what happens when you hire a traditional agency that does everything is they're going to optimize for the thing that they're best at. The thing they're best at is the thing they make the most money at, which is almost always going to be TV buying. We don't say there's not a role for TV. TV is a significant part still of the American media diet, but it is now the minority part of the American media diet. Uh, and so when we go in and we work with clients uh, or we bid on a project, uh, what we come in with is uh, the digital portion. And we usually suggest 40 to 60% of a paid media budget go towards digital. Uh, and then we optimize the digital budget based on where the audience actual is because we are accountable for eyeball time and are accountable for the performance of those ads in a way traditional mediums just aren't, they can't be. So you guys have pretty much uh, zeroed in on, uh, would you say this, uh, have you zeroed in on your strength uh, uh, or, or just focus or made a focus out of digital marketing, digital media? Yeah, I mean, our strength, I think, is, is our passion. Joe and I um, started this company with the intention of going specifically after digital media. It was a passion of both of ours. That's actually how Joe and I met, um, was we were both doing digital media in the political world and someone literally put us in a room and said that we should have a conversation. Um, so that's, that's what spawned our friendship and that's what spawned um, the business that came later from that. So I, I think we already said we've been open for about four and a half years. We've got seven people that work for us now in Tallahassee. Um, we've, you know, we've obviously grown since those, those early days, since those early months. We've expanded um, from doing a you know, mostly or only political business into the corporate world, into the nonprofit world, um, which has been exciting for us. We've done a lot of really interesting work over the past 12 months. We've done a lot of video work, um, which is something that we hadn't done, um, you know, really before, you know, at least heavily before the last 12 months. Um, so that's one of the reasons why Kyle's sitting over there. Yeah, exp explain, explain to us video work. What, where does that come in? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the biggest part of media consumption on digital media, um, look, any of your listeners probably know this because it's the habit they have even if they don't consciously think about it, it's video. Um, sometimes you're watching it without sound, sometimes you're watching it with sound, but when you're on Facebook, when you're on Instagram, when you're on Twitter, the things that you're spending the most time watching are going to be video. And again, there's, you know, there's plenty of room for static content, for photos, for graphics, that sort of thing, but video is eating the internet system-wide. Um, it's eating it on Facebook, it's eating it on YouTube, um, across the internet videos where it's at. So we had a, you know, a business decision to make last year um, about how hard we went into the video market and we made a decision to make an investment there. Um, you know, one thing we believe in strongly, whether it's a brand, whether it's a, you know, a political candidate or a political campaign or an issue, um, is focusing a lot more on documenting than we do creating. And that's how right now we try to tell the story of our business and what we do is by documenting what we do. Um, so that's why there's a camera sitting over there. It follows around um, most every trip we go on. Most of the things we do now, we try to document whether we're in the office, whether we're on the road, um, to try and tell the story of how hard we work for our clients, why we work for our clients, and what it is that we do um, you know, to, to earn our living. Well, um, so is this just cat videos that are blowing up on the internet or, or more than that? Cat videos and food pictures mainly. We focus a lot on food pictures in, in Instagram. Well, um, so tell me about your clients. Uh, you mentioned you have political, uh, you do political consulting, political clients, you have uh, nonprofit clients, you have corporate clients. Where do you spend, uh, how does that kind of break down for you guys and where do you spend your time? Yeah, so to go back to the beginning, um, both Joe and I have a political background. Um, like I said, it's, it's how we met. Um, I was a lobbyist for a number of years. Um, and and to, to your listeners, um, that's, that's what I was doing when Francisco and I uh, first met. Um, I, was, I had the privilege of being Francisco's roommate for a few years. Technically, I think we first met when you were still we in college. And maybe you were doing lobbying. I know you were definitely doing campaign work. I was probably, um, you know, I was probably at the intern assistant level at that point, taking notes in committee meetings and, and helping pull amendment packets. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a huge part of Francisco and I's friendship has been, um, has been based around music. We were on a board um, of a music-based charity together for a while. Um, so a lot, of our, a lot of our hours as friends has been spent listening to music together. So I think it's awesome that, uh, you know, you're going to have some, some artists at the end of this podcast. Uh, going back to the original question, um, you know, our, our client structure, you know, how we're, how we look, um, you know, is probably, 
probably 65, 35 at this point, political to non-political. I was, like I said, I was a lobbyist. Joe worked in the legislature, um, worked for, for some political parties. Um, that, that's how we met was, was we were both doing digital media in the political space. Um, you know, we, we enjoy political work. It's our bread and butter. Obviously, it goes through cycles every couple of years with elections. Um, you know, some of the most interesting we've worked in the, and we've done in the past has been political. Some of the most interesting we work we've done in the last year has been non-political. So, um, you know, we're we're focused on growing as a business. Um, you know, in in several core areas. And right now, a big focus for us is outside of the political arena. We think a lot of the things that we've learned, a lot of the experience we've gained inside of politics. Um, is really useful to the corporate side. Yeah, I'll fill in that. There's specific things that have actually come of age in politics before they came of age in, uh, you know, the private sector and marketing that you would see at a corporate level or or elsewhere. And it's two. One is it's the velocity of content. Uh, Digital media has such an appetite. Digital mediums have such an appetite for content that it's no longer just enough to do one post a day or three posts a day or three posts a week if you're gonna if you're gonna feed the beast and keep the audience engaged. Campaigns happen to be one of the things where the content velocity is so high that you have to develop an expertise. How do we report five things a day or ten things a day? How do we do three emails a day? And so building systems, processes, and expertise of doing that has been critical to our transition. And then the second with a campaign, you're doing a lot of things live, specifically in video. So digital live video is a growing platform. Uh, you think of Facebook Live, uh, you're gonna start seeing popping up in other places, you know, Instagram, it'll be become a bigger uh, issue there. Uh, and so our experience doing live video on the fly in a crowd environment where we didn't have control over it has translated really well uh, into other experience-based sectors. So if you think about tourism, where uh, you might you know, wanna do a Facebook Live from an event, let's say Gasparilla, right? Like you don't have control over that scene, it's live. And so people have the experience to come in, set up, make sure the signal's good, make sure the shot's right, and run a live event from there is actually rare. There's not a whole lot of companies besides ours in the United States that can do that for you. And so those two barriers have helped us develop um, an area of expertise and a, a really competitive advantage among anyone else who's in the market right now. So uh, give me an example if a potential client kind of walks in and says, hey, well, uh, maybe they're a nonprofit client, let's go with that, um, or political, whatever you want to give an example of, and they say, I, want, I have a campaign I want to run, whether it's a, a policy campaign or, or some kind of fundraising campaign or you know, whatever it is, issue, issue advocacy. Um, what kind of steps do you start with and kind of walk them through um, and what's your sort of timeline with them? The first thing you gotta do is, is know the audience, right? So baseline, like you gotta figure out who you're speaking to. If they're trying to speak to 75 year olds, like it's probably not us that they should be working with. Like there's 75 year olds online obviously, but just not at the rate that they'd wanna get. They'd be better off doing direct mail and TV in that case. Uh, if they're trying to reach, you know, really anybody between the ages of you know 20 and 70 20 and 65 we're, we're probably in the space there to help make an impact so we're going to determine who they want to reach uh where do those people live what do they do on a daily basis we call it establishing the narrative of the of the customer or the prospect that they're looking for uh and then once we have that we drill down and we look at well where do those people spend their time online are they facebook users are they instagram users uh do they watch a lot of youtube videos what are they doing are they big blog readers uh and then we tailor a campaign around where those people are already spending eyeball time uh and that campaign is usually shaped uh with the research that the um, client brings to the table, what kind of polling, what kind of focus group have they done? Uh, and if they don't have any, and this is the case in a lot of campaigns, they have a budget to do it, maybe not a budget for the research. Uh, one of the beautiful things about digital is, um, you know, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to pretend like we know the answer about what's going to work. We'll make 20 pieces of content and see what performs. And we call it studs and duds. You know, if you make 20 pieces of content, two or three will account for 80% of the positive results. Uh, and you trim out the other 17 duds and put all your money into your studs. Well, that's great. Um, now, where do you guys spend, uh, so d- besides like the clients, uh, where, uh, for those clients, where do you spend a lot of your time? I know you mentioned video work. Um, there's, I'm sure there's like some email campaigns that go on, uh, other things like that. What, what is some of the most effective ways you've gotten uh, sort of customers or advocates for your clients 
uh, in what kind of spaces? I mean, right now, I think it's, it's really two things. It's going to be Facebook is the most powerful top of funnel that exists. So Facebook is like the network TV of America right now. Everyone's there. They might not be there a lot, but you're going to be able to get everyone there. And Facebook is great for bringing people. Uh, when I say conversion funnel, I mean that's uh, how we get people ultimately to a list. And so the second best would still be email. Uh, and so we usually try and work from existing email list if we can. But if we're building that list, it's going to be built on Facebook. And then we'll look out to Insta um, for there. If it's just your, your, you know, let's say you're trying to reach a group of uh, highly engaged, high income donors, right? We might look on Twitter for that. Like Twitter is, um, has a number of issues as a platform for advertisers, but it has the attention of a lot of, um, you know, engaged, intelligent people are on there routinely. So it's a good place to spread that message. Not necessarily a great place to drive conversions. Uh, if we're talking about an industry specific task, we're probably going to look at Instagram or I'm sorry, um, LinkedIn. Uh, you know, LinkedIn is really the trade publication of, of the digital world right now. And if you're an insurance, you know, let's say you're an insurance agent association and you're trying to reach insurance agents, uh, LinkedIn's a good place to go find and communicate with those people. So you got different platforms for different purposes. Uh, now, you know, there's been a lot of news recently about, you know, uh, Facebook is starting to die off, Twitter's dying off. Uh, you know, in terms of the peak, it's reached its peak and people are now leaving them, they're less engaged. What would you say to that? And, and why is it still important for people to be in, uh, to, to use these social media platforms to engage potential customers or clients? Yeah, so I, one thing I want to avoid doing is lumping in um, all of them together, right? They're, each property has really unique characteristics. Um, Twitter, I don't know that I'd go so far to call it a dying platform. It is a struggling platform for sure. As a person who buys, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a year in advertising, very little of it from our firm is spent on Twitter. Twitter is a really bad platform for advertisers. It is difficult to use. It is expensive. It is difficult to reach the people you want to talk to. Um, Facebook, on the other hand, is probably the favorite platform of mine that we advertise on from an ease of use perspective. It has something um, for the beginner Facebook advertiser. It is really easy if you own a florist shop down the street to start advertising and get your message out to your audience. It has stuff that, you know, my firm as a group of advanced advertisers can use to really develop a, a complex audience and a complex marketing campaign to, to hit with. And, you know, something too that I want to stress is that a lot of times we look at Facebook as the little blue icon app that's on your phone. But you have to remember that Facebook, including its stock price, um, is a much bigger sphere of influence in that. Facebook owns Instagram, right? Facebook owns WhatsApp. So just because some traffic may be trending away from Facebook as a platform itself, a lot of that traffic that has moved, especially for, for, younger, um, for younger users, users under 35, a lot of that's gone to Instagram. So, you know, I don't think Facebook is really struggling much at all as a company. Um, you know, maybe if you take the Facebook platform in and of itself, um, there is less usage, but Facebook in the past five years has exploded with 50 plus users. Um, I mean, they are consuming an enormous amount of content. They're willing to, they're willing to click on things. They're willing to sign up things. They're willing to opt in. They are consuming an enormous amount of content on the Facebook platform. So, you know, I have as an advertiser, no signs that Facebook is struggling. And I mean, probably most of your listeners are familiar with some of the struggles that Facebook went through in the spring. Um, the Cambridge Analytica issue that came out, the congressional hearings, um, you know, some of the results of that um, process, that, that struggle that they went through, um, honestly kind of helped the business that I'm in. They actually made it a little bit more difficult for, you know, the average person to do some of the things that they could do before these hearings began. So some of the targeting options, um, you know, for example, for our political clients, it is a much more in-depth process that we have to go through to run political advertisements now. It wasn't really a big deal for our firm to do that because we have, you know, multiple staff members were set up to deal with those kinds of issues. You know, for the little, um, you know, let's say mayoral or city commission campaign that's trying to do everything internally, you know, maybe there's one person that's trying to be responsible for the Facebook ads as well as everything else. 
that actually became a really big issue for them trying to make sure that they were approved, that they had authorization, that their disclaimers were correct, that they followed all of these rules that Facebook put in place to try to prevent, you know, Russian tampering or whatever it is that they thought that they were, you know, stopping by adding some regulation. So let's take a step back now. Um, you guys mentioned uh, you started this business four and a half years ago. So I want to kind of talk a little bit more about uh, the business side of things uh, and your entrepreneurial uh, venture, if you will. Uh, you were both working in, you know, you were a lobbyist. Uh, Joe, what were you doing? Legislature. Legisl you work in the legislature. And you, you teamed up because you had a, a mutual interest and passion and good skill sets in doing this digital marketing. Uh, what were the steps where you decided, hey, I feel comfortable uh, leaving what I'm currently doing or maybe transitioning where I'm currently doing? I don't know how you did that. Uh, and did you have clients that you had set up? Uh, what was your sort of first moves for each of you in terms of uh, making this move to build a new firm? We were dumb enough to take the chance and dumb enough to stick with it for for a while is, is really what it comes down to. I mean, we, we knew we were taking a risk when we started it. I mean, obviously, there's a huge number of businesses that close in the first couple years. Um, you know, we, we could have been one of them, right? It is really tough to start a business um, and succeed. And, and that's, that's fine, right? Like, that's capitalism at work. Um, so our first year was a struggle, man. I mean, we... we scraped and clawed our way to try and and keep people on board to keep clients on board and it was really hard um, just to step back was it only the two of you at that time there were a couple of other people that were either part-time or you know on a contract basis with us um, you know for the first year so it you know it, it was it was tough man and uh, how many hours a week were you Matt and Joe how many hours a week were you each working in this uh first year or so and maybe how's it compared to now yeah I don't know that I have a good number of of weekly hours but I'll tell you this our first office was at a uh, startup incubator in Tallahassee called Domi Station um, and the at the beginning of Domi um, we had one of the first offices when they when they opened um, the offices on the perimeter had zero windows so we were basically in, I mean we we're in a much smaller room than even than even half of the room we're sitting in now um, we were basically in a hot closet with a door. Um, so during the 2014 election, there were literally some days where I didn't see sunshine, if that gives you any perspective. I came in as the sun was coming up and didn't leave for lunch and didn't leave until after the sun had gone down that night. So yeah, maybe yeah. that helps me, answer add more questions. Like, so look, that question like supposes that if you start a business, you should be doing anything but working on it. Yeah. It's like saying like if you have a baby, you should be doing anything but like taking care of the baby for the first few months of its life, right? Like, here's the answer. If you started a business and you're worried about how much spare time you're going to have, don't start a business. Like, you'll lose. You'll get beat by someone who's willing to spend 14 hours a day on it. Like, as much time as you possibly can is the answer to that question. Well, good. Uh, and then tell me about the next steps. Uh, how, where, were, what, what, what were sort of your uh, sort of transitions of success, if you will, like that you started really seeing, okay, we got something here. And, and where were some of your first hires? When, when did that take when place? When you start, everyone expects that you're going to fail. They won't say it to your face, firstly. So what happens once you're around, it probably happens at the year and a half, two year mark, right? When you've been around long enough and they decide, oh, maybe they're not going out of business, right? Then, haven't closed yet. and your first clients, like you've taken care of them and they like you and there's some word of mouth. It's probably the first two years it takes before you see any, you get that first step. We're like, all right, we're at a level above like we just started uh, and we're not fighting every single day. Um, you know, after that level, I mean, look, I, I see things like a 10 year span. I'm not sure we're past level two yet. I think level two is where we are. We have a recurring book. We have good word of mouth. I think level three for us is building a company brand that extends beyond just Matt and I. Uh, the, the goal, you know, I think this can be a 50 to $100 million a year company. Um, you know, right now we're probably in the two to 3 million range. Uh, so we have a lot more room to go there and a lot more room to grow, but I, I would say we're probably at step two, which is it, it would be a good business if we didn't want to grow. Matt and I would do a very good living on it and we'd have, you know, five or six people that work for us and we'd work eight or nine hour days and go home, but that isn't the goal. And so I, step three is build a brand and you know build a bigger business and i think that part of the story is is key and and probably really relevant to 
um, to your concept behind this podcast, to what your listeners are here to, um, to hear about is, you know, Joe and I could have started out to just build a nice um, lifestyle business for ourselves where, I mean, we, we grow enough to, to keep us well-fed and happy. That's not what we intended to do in the beginning. It's not what we intend to do now. We're, we're trying to grow as carefully as possible. Um, obviously, we want to have managed growth and make sure that we're growing in the proper way. But we're interested in building a long-term business. You know, it's, it's not just... Um, it's not just about Joe and Matt. The business, while you know, certainly is is under our leadership and and goes where we steer it. Um, that's not actually the goal of the business. The goal is to build a a growing, sustainable business that has a large number of highly competent, committed employees. So we've spent a lot of time, and we haven't always gotten it right. I mean, we're not. I mean, we we've run a perfect business by no you know by no stretch of the means. But one thing we really focus on. Um, is is culture in the company and our company culture probably looks a lot different than any other advertising agencies it probably looks a lot different than any sort of political business in town um, and that that's pretty intentional um, we focus a lot on trying to keep employees as long as we can trying to keep them happy um, but also giving them responsibility giving them the ability to work on projects that they can be passionate about and that, that's that's been a huge part of why the company has grown and I think why we have a good chance at growing further so you mentioned that you have about seven other employees right now at the company and what do uh, well tell me you also I know you started this Domi station which is sort of a, a startup kind of environment um, and then you moved out of that and you have your own offices now and I know you're building a studio and you got a podcast you're going to be launching tell us a little bit about your your office space what's that like also I know you're in Tallahassee the office is in Tallahassee but you guys aren't always in Tallahassee your clients aren't necessarily in Tallahassee some are maybe but tell us tell me where your clients are where you spend your most time and then a little bit about your office space and culture yeah, I mean, we're in our we're in our third office now. We started at like you said, Domi, which is a startup incubator in Tallahassee. That's been a great project for the startup community. Um, Tallahassee was in desperate need of kind of a coming together of people that were interested in creating and building businesses and entrepreneurs, and that has that has definitely happened. So um, you know, we had the fortunate problem of getting too big for the space that we had there fairly quickly, um, and and moved out. We moved to a second office, which was great for us for a period of time, and and we got a little bit bigger and had to expand um, beyond that you know for us we spend uh, a good deal of our time on the road um, it's why we're here right now um, we 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 know that we have to spend face time with our clients and work on building our brand with new clients in order to to grow as a business and you know both Joe and I are committed to doing that so that's I mean, we do what we have to do to make it work. Um, we do have a new podcast. Thank you for mentioning it. Um, we just spent the last month or so building out a podcast studio uh, in one of our offices in Tallahassee. Um, it's it's pretty sporty, um, but the new podcast is called Of Record. It is a basically a deep dive into the marketing industry. So it's made for um, people that are chief marketing officers, people that are running social media at a company or a government agency or um, another advertising firm it is not um, it is not meant to uh, to show off our business it's actually meant to look at the marketing industry as a whole particularly the the digital part of that and deep dive so there's two formats that that we're going to be doing with the podcast we recorded several episodes um, it launches in just a couple of weeks um, the first is kind of a news segment so if you happen to have caught one of our Facebook live broadcasts in the last couple months this would be pretty similar to what you've seen there um, we go over what the latest news with Facebook with technology companies is um, Joe and I kind to demystify some of the things that are going on there we talk about what the platforms are doing how they can be used um, it's really practical whether you're uh, again you're the local florist down the street or whether you're the CMO of a fortune 500 company I think there's a lot of really useful information that we talk about there that's one of the two types of episodes we'll be bringing to the podcast the other is a, a deep dive interview format with somebody that either owns a business, um, has a passion project, they're at a nonprofit, something like that. So you asked us earlier what we do when we're um, sitting down with a new client or prospective client for the first time. That 
style episode of the podcast is actually meant to be some insight into that process itself. So what you're going to hear um, is, is pretty much an unfiltered version of what we would do if that person were our client and sat down with us and we had a strategy session with them on really practical, quick and immediate things they could do to help their business or their nonprofit, where they should be spending time, what they should be getting rid of, um, you know, and what are some quick solutions to solving the, the challenges that they have. So I imagine that part of the purpose of the podcast is I know you're not um, it's 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 to showcase a little bit about how you would walk people through, but also uh, provide maybe lay people like us out here that don't know anything about the digital stuff uh, like like basically just some basic tips. Right. I mean, so kind of here you guys are the you know the experts by you know <laughs> in some sense so uh so you're we're going to be getting some expert advice if you will through your podcast but also seeing how you would walk through potential potentially a way you would walk through a client through yeah you're going to be getting some free advice that you know might otherwise cost you some money to to hire us i mean we're not um you know it's it's not a tease we're not trying to hide anything we're going to be talking about real solutions that we would give real clients in the same kind of context um obviously how those solutions are implemented um mostly requires a great deal of effort and that's a lot of what we do at our office but i mean there's there's no uh there's no real curtain to it we're trying to expose like the really practical part of what it is that we do um and how we do it yeah, I mean, look, if, if someone were to listen, and we've got three in the can so far, but if someone were to listen to the first three or four, they probably wouldn't need to hire us to do it. They could just figure out how to go do it, and, like, that that's fine because th- the fact is, like, we know, like, the ideas are kind of cheap. Knowing what to do is kind of cheap. There's a thousand books you could order from Amazon that'll tell you the same thing. The difficulty is in execution. So, like, out of 100 people that listen to the podcast, maybe one person will do it on their own. You know, maybe one person will, you know, get in touch with us and say, hey, I'm interested in learning more. And, you know, 98 people will learn something and that's valuable for us. Like that's the, I mean, that's the only goal. Well, good. Well, it sounds like uh, it's a a great opportunity to build your brand as well and continue to get people knowledgeable about you and maybe take you from that two to three million mark to the 50 to 100 million dollar mark that joe has set for you matt um and maybe you've set this together uh but uh but that's great uh so i i know you guys uh you're based in tallahassee you're all you're working all over the place do you also have national clients outside of florida we do we do some work outside of florida um obviously we've got a lot of experience in florida a lot of contacts in florida so we get a huge amount of work from inside of the state um you know but we've we've done plenty of work outside the state as well um you know and it's something that we're really interested in is actually um, you know, expanding to add another small office in another state, you know, in the next year or two. That's something that, you know, I think is a goal for our business, is a goal for Joe and I. Um, you know, it's something we want to pursue. And uh, if people want to find you, I think it's choosesds.com. It is. Choose, and I know it's basically a landing page. It's kind of like this. New website coming soon. Yeah, uh, totally it's about to not be. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I thought this was just some secretive, like, front page, you know, like, just like the front of a restaurant that you know, there's something else going on behind the scenes. I mean, for a long time, that was a plan. Like our name is, you know, we don't have a sporty name like any other competitive in the industry. Like verbs are very, for some reason, in the digital industry, people like to like kick digital, right? Um, our name was because we knew we were going to be on uh, campaign finance disclosures and we wanted to be as unremarkable as possible for the client because we didn't want it to be a story that they were or they weren't spending on digital media and we didn't want we just didn't want to be a story so our name is kind of plain for that and so we had a website that was kind of suitable for the word of mouth industry that we started in obviously i told you level three for us is changing that and building a brand that uh is not just uh matt or joe is the company but a brand that people know uh you know oh we need some apple digital I've seen that company like SDS. I've seen their ads. I've listened to their podcasts. Like that's, that's, you know, that is step number three for us. All right. Now I mentioned, I always mentioned that I'm not going to get into politics with people that do political work, but I do have to ask you a couple questions because it's very timely. We're sitting here the day after the uh, primary election day in Florida. You guys have seen a lot this year. Some people have been stunned on both the Republican sides and the Democrat sides. Uh, we have with our governor's race, with other races, uh, but just generally, can you tell us um, what have you seen from the digital marketing space and 
how it has uh, reacted or played out among other factors, because obviously um, on the Republican side, the big elephant in the room is Donald Trump, of course. And then on the Democrat side, there's just a lot of other things going on. There's the anti-Trump factor, among other things. Uh, what have you seen, um, whether it be the Trump factor, whether it be everything going on digitally? Tell you know, you talked about television before. Um, what what have you seen as far as uh, what's been impacting this race in Florida, particularly? Macro, you want to take macro, micro. Say, yeah. So look, persuasion in American political life, I, I think, is on the verge of non-existence or ineffectualness. Uh, we're we're in a state right now where it is not clear to me that any ad intended to persuade in politics has an effect on the audience. Two reasons. One is we have two extremely ideological sides of the aisle now who probably can't hear the facts because of cognitive dissonance. Uh, and then second, we've invented a whole popular culture around disregarding things we don't like to hear. We just call it fake news. Uh, we see this pretty clearly when we run persuasion-based messaging online. You can see it in the comments. Um, I suspect that that extends also to TV and radio. Now, look, that is not to say that I don't think these communications have an impact on people. It's just not clear to me that they're going to result, that they are less efficient in producing results and the change in behaviors and opinions as they were probably four or six years ago. So when you say the persuasion, it wouldn't be that the, uh, say the marketing uh, wouldn't be effective. It's just more that you're, your, your goal now is just to sort of get your base out? Well, it's is that off a strategy, yeah. right? Like, yeah. so uh, I'll give you an example. If you are um, running for, if you're a Republican in the past, one of your strategies in, in would always be like, oh, we need to get the centrist, we need to get those NPAs, we need to get those undecideds. Well, like in the Donald Trump era, who was undecided about Donald Trump, right? And, and in Florida, we see now we have two candidates that are uh, on probably further opposite ends of the spectrum of wow. any major candidate. It's like, how are you undecided on whether you are good with a candidate who doesn't say he likes capitalism versus good with a candidate who doesn't? You might not like either one, but you're not undecided. You just might not like either one. Like, it, So the bigger deal is it shuts off the avenue of like, oh, there's these people who might not know what to think yet, and we can help them out. Uh, and forces you into a reinforce the base turnout message. And look, what happens with base turnout is it works its way towards the middle eventually. People get sucked in by the energy of the most um, engaged crowds. Uh, I mean, that's what you saw with, uh, you know, you saw that with Donald Trump. You're going to see that with Andrew Gillum, who's the Democratic governor here, nominee here this year. Um, look, that energy pulls people in from the middle. And we have on both sides now, we have a pretty strong feedback loop that's sucking the middle drive of people so and the the technical side of that if you will i mean i'm not going to presume to tell your listeners which side of the aisle they should fall on like joe said there's a there's a pretty polar opposite choice that's going to happen in the florida gubernatorial election in november but what's been really interesting from a practitioner perspective to watch um, play out on digital media is how some of the successful campaigns at everywhere from governor all the way down to local races um, have done some of the things that we we talked about earlier Joe mentioned how high the content velocity has gotten how much content has to be put out on digital um, that is incomparable to any other medium any other form of media that you've had now or anywhere in the past the the quantity of content that has to be put out is incredible, but you've seen campaigns um, be forced to adapt to that much quicker in a lot of cases than businesses or nonprofits or some of our other types of clients had. Um, and I mean, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you've seen this um, very quickly. Candidates have had to adapt to responding to things on social media, right? Twitter is a rapid response scenario where if you want to be part of the story, you have to get your message out quickly. Um, Facebook, Facebook Live in particular, um, has been a really useful tool this election cycle for putting people in positions that they could not physically otherwise be in. If your candidate of choice um, is doing a rally on the other side of the state, it's unlikely that you're going to take a day off from work and drive over there to see it. But um, even if you don't have a cable subscription, even if you're not in front of a television, you have a window to some things that you've never had a window before. Um, 
you know, Andrew Gillum or Ron DeSantis can pick up their phone and give you a live video from their tour bus explaining exactly where they're going, what they're doing. Um, and that helps voters, that helps people connect to those candidates in ways that a television ad or a mail piece just cannot ever do. Um, it's a totally different type of emotion when you feel like you have a, a sneak peek or a back seat or a behind the scenes peek at what what is going on in a political campaign. So, you know, from from our perspective, watching some of those trends go more quickly than they would in the corporate world in the nonprofit world has been, you know, really fascinating. Campaigns have to be extremely quick with how they respond to things, how they get things out on digital media. Yeah, I can definitely relate because, you know, sometimes you just uh, you just pull up. You could be sitting here on the couch. You could be in the middle of a break from work and boom, Facebook, you, you pull it up and, and there's somebody going Facebook live, you know, whether it's uh, my friend Rory Diamond over there, Canines for Warriors, who was a previous guest. Guys going live every five minutes or whether it's Ron DeSantis at a rally yeah. or at a thing, you know, it's it's uh, you just constantly see. Um, you know, uh, this stuff just infiltrating your space almost. And you got, you could, there's ways to shut that down, right? But a lot of people uh, just get it infiltrated. Uh, real fast on this, um, last couple questions. Uh, since we're in this sort of political policy idea space, um, when you see this uh, sort of, you know, uh, Joe, you mentioned uh, the lack of the ability to persuade, uh, you know, is if, if I'm putting, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, uh, with with in the current world, you people like you said, people kind of decided or undecided uh, pretty fast, or not not undecided. Um, so I've worked traditionally in policy think tanks for the last ten or twelve years of my life, and um, and then you know whether no matter where you fall on the uh, sort of issue advocacy space, uh, whether the, whatever issue your issues you're pushing for or trying to inform the public on, are these sort of um, policy think tanks or maybe even academic research papers coming out of universities or what have you, things that actually have you know some critical information in there that we feel from that sort of academic think tank space um, to try to inform the public on, um, are they kind of, uh, where's that going? Is that just being lost or how can we in that area, maybe it's a nonprofit just trying to get information out, whether it's about the environment or education or whatever, uh, how can they uh, sort of win people over in that in that space? I, look, I think that totally depends on the brand of the organization that's that's putting out the information, right? So, but there, there's an irony in this, right? Like, if you are, say, a far left think tank, the stuff you put out is unlikely to be believed by anyone on the right, but is very likely to be believed by the people who already agree with you. Um, I think the conundrum is if you are a centrist, you're trying to do reasonable policy research and you put something out, no one's going to react strongly to it. You're probably not going to create strong resistance, but you're not probably going to get strong advocacy behind it unless you happen to find something that agrees with an already held viewpoint on one side or the other. Uh, I mean, look, I think, and this is part of the larger political polarization trend that's been going on in the United States since I mean, really probably for 20 years, but accelerating since 2010 and really <laughs> hitting the major leagues since, tw you know, 2016, uh, is if you're not on one side or the other, like, it is difficult to be relevant in the current earned media environment. Well, it's funny because I've read some things about, uh, you know, the way th think tanks used to operate a little more academically and have become more advocacy. Um, I mean, one example not to call anybody out, but the Heritage Foundation, right? They now have a 501c4, and some people, you know, talk about that dilemma of having a sort of a think tank on one side and an advocacy, a pure advocacy group on the other okay. side. But is that sort of, I mean, to, to sort of speak to the relevancy? Let's say, look, we have another major issue in the United States, which is which, which party, what ideology cares about what is true? Like, no one's running on the truth platform now. Like, what we're telling people is you can believe what you want, and that's okay for you, and then we fight about it. Like, that's what's going on. And so the, the problem is, uh, is it good to have advocacy? Yeah. The problem is it's not clear to me that, our, that except for pushing it to people who are already prone to agree with you. So, um, you know, if you're heritage, people are already, you know, center right. Like, 
it's not clear to me that just having advocacy is going to get anybody on the left to agree with you in significant numbers. Now, look, people listening to a podcast, the nature of the podcast demographic, is there like a disagree? Like, no, I've been persuaded many times by the facts. Yeah, but that's because you're a podcast listener, uh, you know, driving in your Prius with, uh, you know, your iPhone. I drive in my Camry. Yeah, your Camry with the iPhone 10 plugged in, right? Like, that's the demographic of this platform. But here's one of my complaints about uh, the political media in general. Uh, is they they constantly miss what's going on because they only ask the same 10 or 15 experts. Like if you want to know how people think, don't watch the news for a day, go to a restaurant, ask the waitress or waiter what they have heard about what's in the news. And what they tell you is gonna be much closer to the response of what's truly being perceived among the American public than what anybody who studies it is telling you. Is this also um, getting into like polls? Like it seemed like all these polls just continue to be wrong. Uh, is this is this part of it? Are they are we polling the wrong people? We're not. So look, the issue yesterday with Andrew Gillum was uh, was the turnout model. Like they underpolled unlikely voters, which is reasonable. Like you wouldn't poll a lot of voters who have low propensities. It's but difficult to defend a poll that polls a large number of unlikely voters yeah. simply because of the name unlikely it's voter. It's more expensive, one. Uh, two, like if you're a pollster, like why are we polling these people? They're not going to vote. But I can tell you what the Gillum campaign did, and this makes sense, is they knew their only route was to turn out unlikely voters, so they went and turned out unlikely voters who were not polled. You saw this impact with Trump to, I think, a lesser degree uh, in 2016 in Florida. Like The way they need to adjust polling is we need to go ahead and adopt a variable turnout model where every poll puts out a model of this is turnout if turnout is, uh, you know, 50%, 60%, 70%, 80%. Here's what the results were. Results, be. yeah. Um, to jump back really quick to your your previous question about you know either issue campaigns or you know maybe a think tank, um, there's there's two things at play for me there. One is obviously what the issue is matters a great deal, right? Uh, if if we're talking about guns, everyone at this point has a pretty firm belief on one side or the other there. But a lot of times the the issues that think tanks care about. Um, are a lot more nuanced than that, right? They're things that, that genuinely could fit on both sides of the aisle depending on what the policy being put forward is or what they're suggesting. I think the issue there that a lot of think tanks have in um, you know, a, a low, in a generation in a society that does not pay a lot of attention to details at this point is, um, they're not storytelling around these issues, right? I mean, a, a think tank is almost always going to come off to the average person as being kind of dry, academic, right? Not something that the average person that isn't um, a donor or isn't, you know, an insider or an influencer or in that universe is likely to care about. I think what the mistake is a lot of a lot of groups are making is not storytelling around that issue. So I'll give an example um, from our podcast. Actually, one of the first episodes we cut a few weeks ago um, was with uh, the guy that is the director of the Innocence Project of Florida. So it's the, the nonprofit that works on getting innocent people that have been falsely convicted of crimes out of prison, um, right? They have a, a storytelling issue, not that they're bad at telling stories, but they literally just need to get the stories of the people that they help in front of more people than they do now, because that's what's going to help them with donations. That's what helps them with awareness. That's what drives new cases to them to be able to find these people that have been wrongly convicted. Um, but it's a storytelling issue. That is not a a sexy issue, right? But it becomes a much more impactful issue when you just watch a 30 second video about a guy that was stuck in prison for three decades for a crime he didn't commit and is only out and free by the grace of God and a couple of people who picked up on it and noticed. So, I mean, that is the big thing that is lacking for a lot of issue campaigns for a think tank, for anyone that's trying to you know, put forward um, a policy change of some sort that, be, that could be considered kind of dry is you have to figure out how that affects the average person and how to tell a story that's going to be a way that evokes emotion and that they're going to care about. Well, and here's another part about the storytelling that almost every organization is afraid to do and is the number one point of contention we have with almost every client we consult with. There is no story if there is no villain. And so many times in think tank, academic world, smart people tend to want to tell stories where there's no bad guy. It's yeah. just circumstances. Like if you don't put a bad guy in the story, 
Nobody cares. It's not motivating. There's no one to get up and fight against. Uh, and so that is the number one thing I probably see missing in almost all the circuits. There is a story. There's no bad guy. 100%. Well, thank you guys. This has been really fascinating. And I'm sure I could have you guys sit here and talk uh, even more about this. But you've got a podcast to do that. Um, tell me the name of the podcast again. Uh, the podcast is called Of Record. So in the marketing world, um, there's a, an agency of record. And so that's, that's the play on words that we're using there. Um, so it's, uh, it's going to be podcast of record. Um, dot com is the website it launches in a couple of weeks we're really excited to to share it and really excited next time you're up in tallahassee to get you as a uh, a guest on it as well i'd love to go uh of record of record yeah okay so uh if you liked uh what the conversation today with uh, matt farrar and joe clements i encourage you to uh, look up their podcast of record it'll be available very soon and so you can save it probably on uh, on all the uh, platforms. Uh, but uh, but thank you guys so much for uh, for taking the time while you're here in Orlando to uh, to be on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thanks, Cisco. It, it's awesome to see you as always. Um, I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate you having us on. Um, great to spend some time talking with you today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, thanks, Joe. All right. Thanks, guys. Like what we do, what we do. Yeah.